Hello, I'm Noel Limon, ASEAN Speaks by Maybank. In this year's Invest ASEAN, our marquee annual event, we are framing the conversations about the future around the ASEAN and ESG opportunity. We see this opportunity in companies that are taking action to grow sustainably in an increasingly uncertain world triggered by the Russia-Ukraine war. In this podcast, we highlight some key points that our speakers made at Invest ASEAN. For at least the next five years, this is what companies and countries need to think about, according to Roger Baker, Senior Vice President of Strategic Analysis at Stratfor, during his talk on the Russia-Ukraine war. One is going to be thinking about long-term food security. So as we look at this change, it is not clear that the Europeans or the Americans are going to rapidly change the sanctions on Russia Um, change the sanctions on Belarus. Once they're in place, it's very hard to remove them. And barring a a complete collapse of of the Russian government system and the establishment of a totally new government, it's unlikely these constraints on Russia are lifted in the next two, three, four, five years or, or even beyond. That means that there's going to have to be a shift in where people are purchasing certain commodities from. The second piece is how long uh, does the tension in the Black Sea last? Do we get a one-year disruption of Ukrainian exports and crop cycles? Do we get a two-year, a three-year cycle? Um, So this is going to go on. That's compounded by rising issues of water scarcity and change in temperature on climate in the long run. Um, But we're also seeing that the broader food security dynamic is creating localized social economic crises and countries are reacting by putting restrictions on exports of their own food commodities. And so we've seen this happen through ASEAN. There's some concerns that that Vietnam and India may ban rice exports for a period of time. Uh, We saw it in palm oil, we see it in chicken. These types of short-term disruptions there The more those happen, the more those become normal tools going forward, rather than tools that are anachronistic in the global free trade marketplace. And that means some fragmentation of global norms and regulations is something we want to be considering and keeping in mind with food security. Heightened energy security risks is expected to spur the transition to alternative energy users balanced against challenges in sourcing for raw materials. There's a lot of talk about this. Um, driving the need to rapidly expand alternative energy. At the same time, it's also pushing for the resumption, at least in the temporary space, of coal um, and the dependency on localized energy sources. In the long term, this may actually finally spur expansion of nuclear power and development, particularly of small modular reactors. But it also pushes this idea of the need for the rapid expansion of green energy. The rapid expansion of green energy requires raw commodities, just like the oil and gas industry required raw commodities. And that means a push toward competition over where you get those commodities and where they're processed. Rare earth elements, some of those which are critical, some of these new energies, that China has a lock on the processing of rare earth minerals. Other countries are starting to get into that but it's going to take a long time to be able to change that processing cycle and make those available from places other than China. This is part of why it's unlikely, for example, that there's a true bifurcation of the global economic system because China holds too much of this in reserve 
And there simply is no replacement for some of what China offers within certain key critical energy commodities. What does the war and geopolitical tensions mean for ASEAN countries? What could be its strategic role? For ASEAN, this is all about opportunity and, and, and risk. On the opportunity side, clearly as companies look to diversify supply chain, ASEAN has a great uh, role to play in diversification and in the idea of creating resiliency within supply chains. ASEAN is going to be a focus of intense competition amongst multiple big powers, certainly the US and China, but I would look for other mid-sized powers as well, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Indians, some of the European countries. That creates an opportunity for ASEAN to be able to shift and move and adapt within those. If the ASEAN nations can find some ways to create synergy and to allow themselves to work together in a block. And that's a challenge that countries are constantly exploiting is that differences within that. As countries respond to inflation, food and energy security risks as part of climate transition, companies need to likewise shift and adapt. The sustainability and ESG agenda is more urgent than ever. There is, after all, an investment and business case for it. Professor Ton C. Whelan, Clinical Professor of Business and Society at NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business, highlighted this in her talk. We looked at more than a thousand academic studies that were produced between 2000 or published between 2015 and 2020 that looked at the correlation between environmental, social, and governance performance or sustainability and financial performance. And what we found when we looked at this both at the corporate side and on the investor side is that 58% of the studies demonstrated a positive correlation between ESG and sustainability and corporate financial performance. Only about 8% of the studies found a negative correlation. On the investor side, we found that 33% of the studies found that ESG investing outperformed conventional investing. 26% of the studies found that ESG investing performed similarly to conventional investing. And then about 14% of the studies found a negative correlation. A matter of debate is what constitutes good ESG standards and practices and how companies and sectors should be rated. Due to current geopolitical risks and for security reasons, should the defence industry be included as a favourable sector for ESG investing? And what about oil and gas stocks? Tonsi discusses the dilemmas and different standards. Challenges around the data. So you have, for the most part, in most jurisdictions, voluntary. And so people are reporting on very different things. So you have apples and oranges, as we like to say. They are um, mostly not audited. And because they're voluntary, again, they'll choose different standards, different metrics, very hard to compare. In addition, there are multiple reporting standards, though we're seeing um, you know, the emergence of the International Sustainable Standards Board that is being set up by IFRS that was announced at COP26 last fall, that standard is also working with the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, SASB, and the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosure, will be working with those two standards to incorporate them into the ISSB. So while I don't think SASB and TCFD are going away, there will be a more um, robust global standard. Speaking about ESG rating agencies, Tesla was dropped from the S&P 500 ESG index. You can see that the rating agencies have very different opinions about Tesla, with FTSE giving them very low ratings, MSCI, for the most part, giving them high ratings, Sustainalytics in the middle, 
you look down at General Motors at the bottom, you can see they're all over the place. Exxon tends to be kind of sort of grouped the same. But you know, so what what makes the differences amongst these? Well, we don't really know because the rating agencies, um, this is their IP, so they don't share in a lot of detail how they're coming up with these things. But if you think about Tesla on the environmental side, where you see three different ways of approaching this, you could be thinking about the negative impact of the lithium, et cetera, going into their batteries. You could be thinking about the fact that for the most part, the electric grids that the cars are being charged on are not currently um, renewable. Um, you could be thinking about um, those types of issues, or you could be thinking about the fact that Tesla is changing the entire dynamic and really moving forward with electric vehicles in a way that has caused the rest of the industry to do so. And then you might give them a hundred, you know, so, um, so a wide variety of different strategies that end up confusing people. And so what happens actually is investors generally are now buying the underlying data and deciding their own rating. Elon Musk had reacted with a tweet that ESG is a scam. Um, there, there's a lot of weaknesses in the ESG data, which is fair. So the um, attacks on the kind of ESG data system are somewhat fair. It doesn't mean, though, that there shouldn't be any. <laughs> it's just that we're at the beginning in a kind of wild west and of, of this process. And there's a lot of weaknesses that need to be worked through um, in terms of both the ESG data itself and how the ESG rating agencies tackle this. For Tesla specifically, there are some significant negative governance and social issues at that company that if you were rating overall, so you know, you're looking at the total ESG score, you might say, I would drop this company. How do we start on meaningfully measuring, tracking, and realizing the return on sustainable investments or ROSI? At the Center for Sustainable Business at NYU Stern, we have designed this model called ROSI, Return on Sustainability Investment, that identifies nine mediating factors that drive better financial performance when a company embeds sustainability in its strategy and its practice. Those nine mediating factors include improved customer loyalty, better employee relations, more innovation, good media coverage, operational efficiencies, improved risk management, benefits in sales and marketing, and improved supplier and stakeholder relations, all of which can drive greater profitability, higher valuations, lower cost of capital, and ultimately value creation for society as well as shareholders. When you look at these nine mediating factors, any kind of good management can drive innovation or risk management, right? But what we're seeing is that sustainability is actually that next wave of good quality management that many sustainability strategies and practices can drive several of these mediating factors and really are very critical to today's um, managers. So from that broad analysis, that broad framework, then um, how do we actually implement against it? So first for a given sector or a given company, we look at what are the material ESG issues and strategies for that sector or company using frameworks such as SASB or Global Reporting Initiative. Then we look at what are the practices that are being put in place or being contemplated? So you can look backward looking or forward looking. Um, what are the practices that are being implemented or contemplated to address the sustainability strategies? Because it's at the practice level that you can actually monetize um, the returns. Strategy is at too high level. 
we then can define what kinds of benefits. Are there an innovation benefit? Is there an operational efficiency benefit? Is there a risk management benefit? And then find a unit of measurement because for the intangibles, you need to figure out how to quantify them and then monetize those. This is how small and medium-sized companies could navigate extensive reporting requirements on sustainability. The way I would approach it is not to start with, I need to report to these gazillion standards and metrics, but this company in this sector, these are the material ESG issues for me. I'm going to focus on these three, you know, that are whatever the number is that are the most important in terms of both their materiality and the opportunity for me. And then I am going to develop my own key performance indicators for that to ensure that I'm meeting my own targets from a management perspective. And then I'm going to map those against the reporting metrics that I'm asked to report against. And I'm going to explain why I don't report to everything because the rest of that stuff is not material to my business strategy. For companies to grow sustainably, they need to be inclusive and equitable, essentially leaving no one behind. This requires removing barriers for the best talent to have a seat at the table, regardless personal identities such as gender, ethnicity and age. The definition of what constitutes best talent can be subjective, even controversial. But practicing diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI compels us to stop and question long-held assumptions that may no longer be valid in today's marketplaces. Companies are, after all, in a war for talent and so they need to look more widely. Global financial news and data company Bloomberg knows this firsthand. We at Bloomberg, we employ just under 22,000 people in over 130 countries around the world with largest concentration in the major financial centers. But we are in a war for talent every day. In 2022, we will hire roughly 5,000 new people into Bloomberg. And as a consequence of that dynamic, we basically have to create a open and inclusive environment to attract all underrepresented groups as well as highly represented groups. And on the underrepresented groups, that includes women, that includes people of color, in some instances, people of different geographies, different sexual orientation, different disabilities, abilities slash disabilities. And in addition to recruiting them, the primary responsibility we then have is to deploy them effectively and basically create an environment where they can be feel comfortable after we've recruited them that we are retaining them, that we're developing them, and that we're basically listening to the things that they have to say that we can do our jobs better. That was Peter Grower, chairman of Bloomberg, the founding chair of the US 30% Club and global DEI advocate. If there is a strong business and even a country case for practicing DEI, why is progress stalling? Women still account for less than 30% of senior leadership and boardrooms in many countries we are attempting to do collectively is evolutionary. It's not revolutionary. This is something that is a cultural shift within our organizations and our industry. And it's going to take a long period of time to get to the end game. And there's going to be some positive momentum. There are going to be some things that set us back like George Floyd and what's been happening with black lives in the United States. So it's, it's not going to be a straight line up by any stretch of the imagination. The phrase that I uh, like to use is that we are in a race without a finish line. And persistence is the primary responsibility of leadership. 
and in the context of that persistence, basically holding people accountable and being able to provide the data that basically will show whether they're making progress or they aren't making progress. How can advocacy work assert and accelerate change? Done it here in the United States with a number of the big institutional investors. Going to the, the Goldman Sachs Asset Management, going to the Black Rocks, going to the Schroders, and going to the Axes and other big asset management firms, and basically having them exercise their influence in many cases as large equity holders of individual companies by having a sit down session with the CEO and his or her team to talk about the relative importance of accelerating their DNI programs going forward. Because in the end, the institutional investment community is the beneficiary of that work because performance will be better, valuations will improve by definition and stock prices will go up. And so I think that's a critically important thing. As many women drop off midway in their careers or take a back seat to balance work and raising a family, what can companies do to push for more gender parity at leadership levels? Part of our responsibility in leadership is to basically promote people earlier on in their careers because nine times out of ten, what we have found is that they have done incredibly good jobs with that new responsibility. And it has accelerated their development as business leaders going forward and as great representatives of our firm. Unconscious bias is said to be a reason why underrepresented groups are overlooked for top roles or their voices are often dismissed. How does Bloomberg deal with bias in a work environment that thrives on speed and expediency? Uh, We have... Uh, developed a series of programs called our goal programs, uh, which are basically focused uh, initially on underrepresented groups. So we have a series of them going on in, in Asia now, very much focused on basically dealing with bias, but also using that as a foundation of, of building your leadership philosophy and leadership capabilities going forward. We hold our folks accountable in their annual, semi-annual and annual performance evaluations. We have questions and comments that they have to give with regard to bias training. And so it's pretty much integrated into the growth of a manager to make sure that we've got that bias training and they're aware of these things. What would be one word to inspire DEI in all facets of an organization? I think I'd pick the word collaboration because we're not going to achieve our objectives unless different groups collaborate effectively to uh, build spirit, build community within the organization with the ultimate goal of obviously making an important contribution to society. But I think collaboration for all of us is critically important. And and if I had the opportunity to say one other word, culture is critically important, is it is really incumbent upon you and me and other leaders to set the tone at the top and create a set of standards that we will hold our colleagues accountable to as we go forward, because this is a 
as every bit as important as our capital allocation strategy, our sales growth, our expense control, involvement in local communities, the higher purpose that we serve as an organization. We explore some of the best ways to cultivate a culture of DEI in ASEAN, starting with Thailand, where women hold 21% of board seats of all public listed companies and 19% of the top 100, the highest in ASEAN. Dr. Sora Paul Tulayasatin, the head of sustainable market development at the Stock Exchange of Thailand, explains their approach, including integrating UN's women's empowerment principles or WEBS. Uh, the first step, of course, is that we want to... Uh have the standard setting. We want to have a guideline uh, for listed companies uh, to follow because sometimes in terms of diversity, there are uh, many questions on uh, what to do or how to do or what are the best way to do. So having a guideline uh, is the best way for, for companies to uh, have a, a easy checklist say that uh, this one, uh, they have done it or not. So we have done that, we have published a guideline. And then we need to build capacity building for the companies. So we have done the workshop, we have done a collaboration with, uh, for example, UN Women or this event to promote awareness that uh, it is uh, in the interest of the companies to do it. Uh, there are evidence that uh, you have presented in the beginning that female leaders tend to be more uh, broader in view uh, in the decision-making. So we have some of that present. And then we also need to uh, have assessment because uh, you never know uh, if you have achieved the goal or not if you don't, have, you don't assess. And you have uh, to have uh, the company uh, disclosed, uh, disclosed uh, on the status of what they do. And I think the most important thing is that uh, as a stock exchange of Thailand, we also do it ourselves. Because we're not just telling others what to do, but we also do it ourselves. For the management at the stock exchange of Thailand, there are 44% uh, female representative. Yeah, so, so, so that is uh, uh, above the target, but uh, we understand that there are differences in uh, company in different industries that they need to consider. In Malaysia, women hold 18% of board seats of all public listed companies and 26% of the top 100. The goal was to reach 30% by 2020. We need some regulations to mandate and catalyse change. Dr Ken Yeo, the Vice President of Corporate Governance and Sustainability at Brusa Malaysia, weighs in. In January this year, uh, Bursa Malaysia has actually enhanced its listing requirements where all PLCs are required to have at least one woman on their boards. We believe that uh, this is the right step forward because uh, according to our observations, once one woman joins an all-male board, that inertia and that cultural barrier is broken. And we hope to see some degree of normalisation over time where subsequent uh, appointments of women directors becomes uh, you know, a business as usual. So when you view it from such an angle, having at least one director on every board represents not just a significant milestone in itself, but also a catalyst to ultimately get to our target of 30%. Other initiatives that are supportive of this will be our attempts to get more data points as well as transparency uh, that will give us a more comprehensive yet nuanced view of diversity across all levels of the organisation. He also talks about the new DEI disclosure guidelines that are coming up. Bursa is in the midst of enhancing our sustainability reporting framework 
And two of the key proposals yeah, uh, include the mandating of a set of disclosures, common themes and indicators. And for the adopted indicators, we're also proposing to require explicit performance targets to be set. So of course, one of the common themes that we have identified is diversity. And related indicators include, you know, employees by gender, age, disability, etc. for each employee category. And this applies to directors as well. So we will give the whole market that visibility. Equity, the E in DEI, tends to get overlooked on how we can fundamentally remove barriers to participation and also gender gaps. How do you ensure open and equal access to opportunities? And how do you normalise a DEI culture? Lo Chin Lu, Asia-Pacific Strategic Advisor of Edge, strategy that certifies companies for DEI, discusses. In pay equity, you know, there should not be any difference in pay in the same type of job that's performed by men or women. So that should be pay equity. Um, also, in terms of being equitable in policies and practices, how does the organisation measure the equity? You know, and part of that would be, for example, through employee feedback. You know, as you poll your employees through either your annual engagement surveys or pulse surveys that companies now increasingly use to poll their, their stakeholders, their, their, their old employees, they can ask targeted questions, right, to check whether policies and practices are equitable between men and women and how they're used or what is the feedback and what is the experience, right, of using these policies. To implement a DEI and make real changes, it can raise inconvenient questions on perceived difficult topics such as sexual harassment, mental health and power dynamics. So I think in terms of safe workplaces, you know, companies must be able to address the elephant in the room. They must slaughter sacred cows. They must be bold. And there must be champions and role models in the community you know, that will speak up on this fact. So I think uh, for, for me, you know, wearing the hat of Edge as well as WA, which is Financial Women's Association of Singapore, is a non-profit platform that champions uh, female uh, success, right, in both workplace and uh, personal lives. You know, we believe strongly that uh, we need champions and role models to, to speak about such topics and then provide and open the floor to these discussions, which would then also, you know, help to get other companies to share and to address these issues. At the moment, companies are paying a lot of attention on E or environment of ESG. To support climate action, S or social is important. This year, Arabes released a study to show that companies that embrace diversity are ahead on their climate action goals. So S commitments have to be tracked because what gets measured and disclosed gets attention. I think it's prioritisation. So I think, you know, in the spectrum of E, S, and G, which a lot of companies need to report on now, you know, they've prioritized uh, environment factors. And for good reason, right? Uh, the planet Earth needs that. You know, but in addition to that, I would love to see companies elevate their S reporting and prioritizing their S, the social pillar, because I do see it uh, as a sort of a second distant cousin to environment right now. So I think really to move the needle and not to see grass grow continually, you know, is to prioritize S. And with that prioritization will come the commitment, the measurement, the tracking and the reporting.
Dr. Amy Morris, the CEO of Maybank Investment Banking Group and chair of the 30% Club Malaysia, summarizes the conversations on DEI with her takeouts. Firstly, is that uh, quotas and KPIs need to be augmented, in my view, by advocacy beyond just the boardroom. These advocacy initiatives must also include top leaderships. Uh, secondly, increased and specific disclosure requirements by investors, regulators, and policymakers to expedite demographic representation. And I think we heard today all three panelists, Dr. Sarapal, Dr. Ken, and Chin Lu have greatly emphasized that. Uh, the third point uh, for a takeout is that focus on equity, something that sits in the middle of DEI and perhaps gets a bit uh, less attention, is that uh, the focus on equity is crucial given very established practices of unequal access to opportunities. Uh, my fourth point is that uh, DEI definitely is not a compliance exercise or a mere reporting tool. Uh, rather, it is a competitive advantage for human capital management, very important for competitiveness in all organizations. And last but not least, there is ROI in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in closing, Invest ASEAN, this is what Amy said. I would like to add this quote by Dame Jane Morris Goodall. The greatest danger to our future is apathy. There are external headwinds that we are facing, sure, but don't doubt what we can achieve collectively if we embrace our humanity and strive for inclusivity. Be brave. Be the leader ASEAN needs now. And that's a wrap for this podcast. For all the conversations at Invest ASEAN 2022, go to Maybank's YouTube channel. I'm Noelle Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Maybank. Maybank.